My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. And later on, we have a great interview lined up with Thomas Hooper. Yes. And uh, we spoke a little bit about his work last week. Mm-hmm. And this past week was the Pride Toronto annual general meeting. Yes. Now, you yes. did your civic duty, Sebastian. And yes, you did. suffered through four hours yes. of the meeting. It's like four hours and 12 minutes or something like that. But yeah, yeah, all, all four. Hours. I didn't even skip during the break just in case there was background noise. Oh, okay. um, nice. I like it. Now, I don't normally advocate this kind of speaking, but I regret not drinking. Um, but in my defense, I was putting a roof on a library in Minecraft. So only half my brain suffered. And the other half was was building, putting a roof on a, a structure. So that's yeah. that's fine. Although I did take a lot of time codes, and there was a the occasional moment where I stormed out of the room to talk to my roommate, where even she was like, "Yeah, no, I don't know anything about Robert's rules, but that doesn't sound right." So there was there's a lot of that. There's a lot so of that. We're gonna get into that in just a few minutes. But before we do, let's have a quick whip round of the non-Toronto based news, um, All right. because there is. There is some of it. Oh, um, yes. Apparently, the Buddies and Bar Time Theater, um, they've had major board turnover. So we're going to mm-hmm. be having a bit of a bit of a gander and seeing what's going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Pivotal to the gay community in Toronto. I did oh, yes. just say that we're not going to move away from Toronto, but this is, uh, I swear, we're heading out of that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, in an update to an ongoing story that we have been following, mm-hmm. Josie Smollett has, uh, will be sentenced on March the 10th, according Ooh. to the trial judge. Um, Josie mm-hmm. Smollett, who I believe is uh, facing criminal charges in Chicago. Yep, five um, out of six of the charges are guilty. Yep. He was found guilty on December the 9th of five felony counts of disorderly conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye out for March when that becomes a thing that uh, we will be reporting on. Um, and in other news, there's just a little bit here and there that we've been keeping an eye on. One of the really interesting things was 120 German uh, Roman Catholic priests and various officials all came out at once Ooh. in order to kind of uh, strongly encourage the Catholic Church to address its its approach to the LGBT community. So they have a change.org petition. It's got about 80 odd thousand signatures mm. uh, at the moment. The petition is entirely in German, so I'm not going to be able to uh, translate it on the fly for folks. Believe in um, yourself. You know, that's that's true. That is, uh, <laughs> what's what's missing here is belief. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. It was a good uh, zebra tactic of them, though, of because uh, everyone who came out is camouflaged against the group. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's uh, it's a good tactic. So the German, um, the now out German Catholic uh, priests and uh, and other people of the church have issued several demands or several um, yeah no they're, they're calling them demands number oh. one we want to be able to live and work openly as LGBTIQ plus persons in the church without fear mm-hmm. they want to be person LGBT persons must have access to all fields of activity and occupation in the church without discrimination 
three, the church employment rules need to be changed. And then number four, defamatory and outdated statements of church documents, sexuality and gender needs to be revised. Five, they should not withhold the blessings of God and access to the sacraments from LGBT persons and couples. Uh, six, that church that invokes Jesus and his message must firmly oppose all forms of discrimination and promote a culture of diversity. And seven, in dealing with LGBTIQ persons, the church must uh, has caused much suffering throughout its history, um, and they want the bishops to take responsibility. What's really interesting in terms of the context of this is unrelated at a different time, the Pope, the head of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. the pontiff himself, uh, made a statement essentially strongly encouraging Catholic families and, and all peoples to love and support their children, mm-hmm. even if they are of the homosexual persuasion. Oh, no. Um, and to to not sort of cast them aside. So it's interesting that there is uh, some European pushback and the Pope himself seems sort of mm-hmm. so-so. But I feel like me and you have been on the, the merry-go-round of the will the church be less homophobic uh, debate. For uh, the papacy tends to run uh, 40 to 60 years behind the rest of society. So, I mean, it, I do think it's inevitable. I don't necessarily think it's inevitable in the near future. I think that probably in about 20 years. Yeah, be exactly as they're requesting. And it's worth noting the papacy, like the Vatican, the, mm. the organizational structure of the Vatican. Papacy um, Inc. The the Pope himself, yeah, pretty chill dude. By the oh yeah, pretty chill. oh yeah, yeah. The the Pope tends to be uh, somebody who forty years ago was a very chill and progressive twenty year old. So just imagine what a chill and progressive twenty year old was like forty years ago. That's the kind of policies they'll be pushing now because they they tend to gel into place when they actually enter the church mm-hmm. so uh that's why there's just that time delay he he's actually a pretty chill dude he's very accepting of women but like that was you know about 20 30 years ago you know in the 80s that was when feminism hit the the popular mainstream discourse as being like yeah no maybe we should just treat women like human beings so i mean like that was a totally normal speaking point in the 80s when he was a young man and so that's translated into the papacy now. So, I mean, I think uh, whoever was in their 20s in the, the late 90s, uh, that's about, you know, when they're in their 60s or 70s, that's where we're going to start seeing uh, gay-friendly popes. Um, let's jump on to maybe a bit of a more upbeat note. Uh, this okay. is Pina Collider uh, by Space Face. Uh, psychedelic rock group it's quite upbeat I was a big fan of it and we will okay. be jumping into an interview with uh, Tom Cooper just after this
Welcome back to Canque, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And this is the interview that we have been on the edge of our seat excited for. I was not excited for the four hours of the Toronto AGM that that I still have to finish because Mm -hmm. four hours. You know, the things we sacrifice for our listeners, four hours of our lives listening to an AGM in a city we're not even in. But mm. we'll get into that a little later. I want to, I'm so excited to, uh, into, to welcome to the show. We talked about your incredible work last week. It's the uh, Tom Hooper, who I believe is a professor at, uh, I want to say, North York. Is that correct? Uh, well, that's where it's located, but the university is called York University. And uh, I'm in the Department of Equity Studies there. Amazing. There's an amazing radio station there, uh, The Vibe. Really fantastic team working out of uh, The Vibe. I also, I used I, to go there. Yeah. Oh, you went to go the Vibe or York U? That's where I did my master's. <laughs> Excellent. So last week, we talked about your somewhat of a bombshell. Um, you know, this is now the, the, the ripples have turned into waves from, mm. from your analysis. For those who weren't here last week, they may have missed that we were talking about a report that you put together. From And I'll do a quick pref- uh, preface and you can clarify or correct. But my understanding was that you were going to look into something unrelated. Yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, just I think it was about policing or something. And the more you dug, the more the numbers just didn't make sense. And your final report into how Pride Toronto, um, you know, secured 1.8 million in, in grants uh, from the federal government and other levels of government um, and just move the money around as some shuttling. Now, we don't know exactly. I think uh, criminal definitions are best left to, to the, the police on this one. But words like, you know, mismanagement and potentially fraud have been bandied about. And I do think that we can we can comment on that. Um, it's pretty serious stuff. Um and we went into some of the depth last uh, last week. We've been following Pride Toronto's mismap, you know, mistakes for years. But mm. in, in your own words, Tom, what what was the gist of what you uncovered and released in that report? Well, I'll start with my motivation uh, because I think that's a good intro. And you you mentioned it briefly last week about how you know I came into this project. I'm a historian, and I my 
PhD was on the Toronto bathhouse raids, which occurred in 1981. And this was a moment in uh, LGBTQ history in which the police raided bathhouses and arrested over 300 men in one night. So that's sort of my expertise. And after I finished my PhD, I, you know, they say, get a new project. So I did. Uh, And I started looking at this idea of decriminalization in 1969. Because for me, looking at the bath raids in 1981, hundreds of people criminalized for their sexuality. Um, I walked away with this really central question. How is it that uh, we have these bathhouse raids if homosexuality was decriminalized? So that's what I was working on. It was a legit, nerdy, academic question. And that's when I came across these heritage grants. The Department of Canadian Heritage spent over $2 million in 2019. They gave this money out to various different groups. And one of the groups they gave money to was Pride Toronto. That surprised me because Pride Toronto was founded in 1981, right after this mass criminalization. So for them to celebrate 1969 as decriminalization, to me, that was a betrayal. So I thought, okay, I've got to look into these grants more. And so I did more access to information requests. When I got more documents back, I found this one document that said that a Cree artist, Kent Monkman, was developing seven new artworks to celebrate decriminalization. So as a historian working on this topic, I was like, what? Kent Monkman is doing something like this? Uh, And so from there, I started asking questions and I started finding out some really disturbing answers. Uh, That's your first mistake. Asking questions. That's, I mean, uh, that's a, that's a road. Nobody should go down is asking questions. You know, it's really interesting because although as a current affairs show, we talk a lot about pride scandals and there's always a pride scandal, you know, but we are genuinely really interested in things like, I think it was, I believe it was project soap, you know, the bathhouse raids in the, in the eighties, um, and I think there was a even a more recent one, I want to say 2018 or 2017, where the Toronto police spent like 1.5 million on an undercover park sting to arrest six people for, for, for sex in the park. Oh, right. Yeah, it was... it's just oh, obscene. That, that was that that was particularly obscene because the police in June 2016 issued an apology for the bathhouse raids. Mm-hmm. And two months later. They went undercover into the bushes, into the park to try to uh, arrest gay men. Uh, totally uh, outrageous. Yeah. So it was Operation Soap was the bathhouse raids name. And then we have Project Marie in 2016. So they always have these cute little code names for when they come after us. Jeez. And that if, was in uh, Scarborough, I think, wasn't it? It was Etobicoke. in the suburbs. Mm. Etobicoke, right. Okay. Yeah, if only they'd uh, allocated the same thought and attention to catching a certain Bruce MacArthur, then maybe that would have been Mm. a little bit of better use of resources. I mean, it's really interesting. You know, we've talked about the judge's report on the uh, Toronto Police uh, investigation into Bruce MacArthur and the the incredible critical approach uh, that that report took on the Toronto Police Service. But... We're not going to bash the Toronto Police Service on this occasion. There's certainly enough ammunition to do so. But in this case, I think that there are some real questions raised. You know, you talked about the Indigenous artist Monkman. I believe he was even like there was a a, a full page ad in the Pride Guide about this project. And 
I believe there's also allegations of the same outputs being billed to multiple grants, essentially double dipping across multiple grants. Um, And really the thing that floored me is all the letters of support saying, yes, this is a major project, give them all the money from nobody. Nobody just made up. It, it, It seems like no one was able to vouch for these documents. It's uh, one of the low points of my investigation, for sure, was getting these letters of support. And we have to understand the context of these support letters. This was weeks after uh, Pride invited the police back into the parade. So they reversed the ban that Black Lives Matter had asked for, demanded for in 2016. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, it, it was right on the heels of that invitation that Pride filed these support letters. So these support letters uh, use language that indicate these organizations were supportive of Pride's move to invite the police. So when I got these letters in the access to information request, I was very, I really wanted to hear from those who wrote and signed the letters because I wanted to get an explanation. So the 519 Community Center, located right in the Church Wellesley Village in Toronto, um, providing services, I, I sent a letter to, uh, I sent their letter to themselves, right? Saying, did you write this? And why did you think it was hmm. appropriate for Pride to invite the police? And they came back and said, that's not an authorized letter. We did not send that letter. Uh, Pride asked us to support this project and we said no, clearly said no. Mm-hmm. So uh, the letter was actually a copy of a letter that the 519 had pr- previously provided to Pride for a different grant. Uh, So they just took the, and with the signature on it too. So it's the the text of the letter and the signature of the letter uh, duplicated. They're not the only group too. Uh, There's um, the Assembly of First Nations apparently provided a letter to Pride for this, uh, promising a partnership. So this wasn't even just an endorsement. This was a partnership. It lists specific Indigenous communities that were supposedly working alongside all of this. Um, And I got this letter and I sent it to the person whose signature appears on the bottom. And they came back to me and said, uh, I I left the Assembly of First Nations six months before this letter was signed. I've never seen this before. And uh, so, you know, getting that back, I realized uh, this was, this had crossed into new territory. Uh, Mm. As you say, uh, these serious words that we'll leave to authorities to use it to does, describe. If I was well, to it, describe a hypothetical situation where someone invents letters to secure funding from the government, I would have believed that that mm. hypothetical situation was essentially defrauding the government. And, and you know, you, I'm amazed that there's no police investigation into this. Well, there probably will be soon. Well, okay, so there is such a thing, oddly enough, as accidental white collar crime. And it's usually just like small business owners who do something that is technically embezzlement, but they don't know it. Like taking money out of the petty cash without signing it out, knowing that they can put it right back in two days later. That is technically illegal. It's technically uh, embezzling from yourself, even though no harm, no foul, you put it all back because it's not properly documented. That is a white collar crime. So you have things like that. And there have been moments in the past where Toronto Pride has done things where it looks like it may have been somebody who just did not understand how finances work when you're running a not-for-profit organization. 
And they did something not knowing that the rules were a little bit different. It looked like fraud, but then you look into it and it seems like it may have been an innocent mistake. Artificially creating letters of endorsement. Uh, you can't do that by accident. Like this is now at a point where I, I don't even think, you know, attaching the word allegedly onto anything is even appropriate anymore. It's just a matter of like, well, we don't know what the police would say. I think that's the only level of analysis we can look at at this point in time. Like this is, you're right. This is, this crossed the line. This is something special. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a new level of harm too, right? Where, you know, this person who supposedly signed this letter, you know, they're young, they're getting started in their career and they do not need to be dragged into the middle of this massive financial and ethical scandal that Pride Toronto has done. They, they didn't ask to be there. And I'm really glad that uh, in working in consultation with them that I removed their name to keep them off of this. Uh, as far away from this as possible. So they can go continue on with their life, with their ambitions, without being harmed by this. But think of how close they came. If it weren't me and some other researcher, um, if if someone uh, went and tried to get the original access documents that I got, you know, there could be real harm caused to people's lives and careers through this. And I don't think anybody ever thought of that. So yeah, definitely... You know, where's where is it? Where's the perspective on behalf of heritage? Did they not do any checking in this, but also the perspective on those people who supposedly signed these documents and and how they must be feeling? You know, that must be really violating to see your signature on a document that you don't recognize. I can feel how I have never had that happen to me before, but I can imagine what that would feel like. I think it also uh, harms other organizations to attract mm -hmm. funding. Like, it, it makes the entire Pride movement, I mean, Toronto Pride is kind of a famous beast unto itself, but it does make Pride organizations in general potentially suspect as like, well, they tend to have people who don't know what they're doing running the show. And that 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 is an unfair assumption. There's very good organizations out there. And it, it, it does harm the green. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there not are... in current years, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. But it, there's also... I'm sure there, there are also... historical snapshots that we find. There's, there, there are great pride organizations across the country. There are also pride organizations that operate very similar ways to Pride Toronto. And I really think that our communities need to take a step back after this and really reflect on what it is we're going to expect and ask of our community organizations in term, terms of transparency, and accountability. I'll give you an example. Okay. I, uh, the grant report that I found invoking Kent Monkman's name, it said that uh, Pride had a fully executed contract with Kent Monkman. Now I knew that Monkman had already left the project by the time that report was filed. Okay. That report also claims a fund matching agreement with the Art Gallery of Ontario. So I sent that to the Art Gallery of Ontario. They came back to me and said, no, there was never an agreement. We had a couple of informal phone calls and that was it. There's also in that report uh, a note about how Montreal Pride was partnering and they were going to provide a, a bilingual uh, support for this project. So I sent the same document just as I did to the AGO. I sent it to Montreal Pride. This was in August. And I said, did you partner with Pride Toronto on this? Oh, we'll get back to you. So I followed up again. Oh, we'll get back to you. Uh, last week, after the report is out, I said, okay, look, I'm, 
I, I would like to get an answer on this. Like, this is a serious matter for our communities. Mm. No response. So mm. this isn't just Pride Toronto. This is an issue that I think is affecting many of our community organizations because they are, they're sacred cows. No one is allowed to criticize these groups. Uh, and I think that's been going on for so long that they've developed these practices where they don't have accountability or transparency. How linked do you think this is to the general trend of the corporatizing of the pride movement? Because a lot of what's happening here is pretty normal, shady business practice. You're sort of moving out the realm of not-for-profit local organizations just putting together a festival. And now you're looking at the kind of behaviors you would expect from like a mafia front or some kind of a dirty business that's trying to hide the fact that they use child labor or something like these are, are very overlapping behaviors. Do you think the corporatization of pride is, is contributing to this or do you think it's creating demands or, or, or putting unfair pressure on the, the, the board members or. Well, I think there's a lot of pressure on the organizations that they need to continually expand um, because of the way, you know, they're nonprofit so a lot of their expansion relies on grant funding. They, they rely on government funding, grant funding, and to a lesser extent, their sponsorships. But this produces a pressure to constantly grow. If you go, go to the Pride website, look up their staff complement. It's like, why are all these people being, impl- it's such a huge organization. And you think your job is Sunday <laughs> at the end of June, Put on a parade. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is what you do. And now we have like Pride Toronto is doing these training sessions for police officers. This was in their minutes from this past June. And so why? This is not what you do. Like leave that to the other orgs who are supposed to be doing those sort of services. You are Pride. You are a festival. Mm -hmm. Stick to that and, and keep it at that. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that because I believe, I thought it was Egal Canada that was doing the police training in the Toronto market. You know, it, it differs around the, the country as to who does what training, but I always thought Egal was the, the one in Toronto. Um, honestly, I think what the rest of Canada should be concerned about is the fact that this doesn't pass the sniff test Mm. and the federal government should have known better. Mm -hmm. Honestly, if we don't see an appropriate reaction from the the federal government on this, you know, the fact that uh, reports were handed in for money that was solicited with just completely fake documentation reports that have massive inaccuracies in them in terms of the core deliverables, like how much, how obvious, hypothetically, would you need to be in defrauding the government before the government pays attention? You know, it, it begs the question, like, how, how more clear does it need to be? I want to also emphasize for our listeners here, and we mentioned it a little bit last week, that when we saw Pride Toronto being a mass, given a massive pile of money for uh, surveying the relationship with the police across Canada a local festival in the city, um, you know, it raised our eyebrows and, you know, it was in the context of conversations at the time where Toronto Pride might go bankrupt. Like they were hemorrhaging cash. 
Mm. You know, they they couldn't win for losing in the pro or against police participation uh, moment. And also just the the other news stories around Olivia Noama, the former executive director of Toronto Pride. If you remember her almost deranged Twitter battles with people that were just taking up a lot of airtime uh, that were completely unnecessary and just uh, distracted from the core work. So I think in, if you think of the context of when all of this was going on, we knew at the time Pride Toronto was a mess. So this is this is madness. I wonder then how Pride Toronto of today is dealing with this. They've decided to call it a legacy issue from all of 12 months ago. Um, I didn't know those were legacies, but there we go. They're calling it a legacy issue from just 12 months ago uh, and trying to distance themselves. So they had the AGM, the Honourable General Meeting, last Wednesday. You were brave enough to sit through uh, that entire meeting there, Tom. What what was your take? How did they handle these uh, these allegations? Um, well, they didn't. Uh, they weren't. <laughs> they, they weren't prepared to answer questions. They weren't prepared to be forthcoming uh, about what happened. And they insist that this is a legacy issue. This is in the past. This is history. Um, and so, as a historian, I'll, I'll do my job then. Okay. Uh, so let's look at some of the behaviors that this board and this executive director have engaged in with regard to these grants. So first of all, let's go back to last January. Uh, as part of one of these grants, Pride was required to submit an audited financial report. And this report would have told Heritage where the money went in this grant, where it was spent on. And Pride went back to Heritage and said, oh, we, uh, we can't. We're in a financial crisis right now. And our auditor is going to charge us $10,000 to do the audit. I mean, $10,000 to audit $250,000 of revenue seems absurd to me. It's, uh, I, will, yeah. I will say $10,000 is the average for a charity's audit. It's, it's, it's smack bang in the middle. And it also should be of zero surprise to anyone managing a large charity that it's is not an grand annual an thing like yeah. if you're yeah. not this is this is not a shock it's always so this is price. not <laughs> this is not their general audit which definitely okay. would that would cost that okay. this is a special audit that was specifically required as part of the grant it's in the contribution agreement that they have to do this Sorry, my, uh, I think. No, my... no, that was, that was a Luke thing. I saw it too. Oh, okay. <laughs> Luke, your, your, uh, your Wi-Fi was a little bit. Uh, yeah, I'm wired in. I'm not sure what the issue is. Might be all the truckers coming through. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So it sounds to me like Pride Toronto agreed to this audit. Uh, and then at the last minute, hands up, we're sorry, we can't provide any financial evidence because we just don't have the money to provide any financial evidence. It seems awfully convenient when there's allegations of mismanagement that emerge a couple of months later. Well, here's, here's the problem with the claim that they couldn't afford that audit. They are now telling us in their annual report that they have posted two consecutive surpluses. So they have actually two surpluses that they've gained in the past two years. So I don't see this financial crisis that they were talking about last January. 
It's just not there. It just seemed to be a handy excuse. Okay, that's the first example. The second example is this past June. The CBC uh, released my initial findings on the uh, Kent Monkman project. And Pride Toronto, in response to that, they, they told CBC the reason the project fell through was because of Kent Monkman's commission fee. So their response was to blame Monkman, blame the Indigenous artist. Uh, the reality is that the reason the project fell through, the reason Monkman walked away, is because at the very last minute in contract negotiations, Pride was demanding ownership of his artwork. Mm. So that was the key issue. The, the commission fee had always been agreed to. There was never an issue with the commission fee. But this board, instead of admitting, oh, well, that's because we were actually trying to take Indigenous artwork, mm. um, they decided to blame the com commission fee. Uh, to me, that's uh, totally outrageous and unacceptable. And it shows that the current board, NED, they don't want to come out with the truth here. Like this, this situation demands the truth. It demands pride coming out and saying, yes, we did this. These things happened. Yes, we manipulated documents. They already know this stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. they, they, they know all of this story. I have provided them every allegation. Going back to the summer, I've been emailing them every single thing in my report. So they know it all. Um, and they owe not just our communities, but the whole country uh, an explanation, I think, for where that where those public funds went. Yeah, these are tax dollars at the end of the yep. day. I feel sorry for Monkman being kind of dragged through the dirt on this one. Now, what Monkman's folks say and what Pride say, there's clearly a, a disparity there. But it's interesting that we seem to be catching up, catching Pride Toronto um, in in their own web of 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 statements. Uh, let's say that. I think it's interesting that they claimed. Uh, in their initial response to your most recent report, that uh, essentially they've hired KPMG to sort it all out. And this was reported to the CBC as well, and I'm sure others are, are aware of it. But what's really interesting that when you look at, and I think you linked to this, the engagement details on their compliance review, KPMG said that, you know, we'll have that to you last week. At time of recording. So for our listeners, that could have been up to two weeks ago. Um, what happened? Is KPMG just slow or is Pride conveniently just sitting on it? I mean, who you know, it's it's just bizarre that the documentation says one thing, but what's coming out of their mouths seems to be completely different. So Pride engaged KPMG in October. Uh, as a response to all of my emails, right? I'm sending them documents, questions. They just said, okay, let's shut Hooper up and hire KPMG. Um, and so I met with them and I got the details of how this was going to go down. And they told me what they're going to do is they're going to produce a report first, early January, that they will send to the board. And the board will have that report. Then after that, they are going to do what they call a public facing report, right? So they clean it up. Um, mm. Now, they, Pride has said last week they're not going to sugarcoat it. So I'm hoping that means that the public report is going to look very similar to the private report, but I don't think we're ever going to know. You're absolutely right that they told me that the final report, all said and done, would be finished the week of January 17th, which would have been before the annual meeting. And I think 
you know, how can members approve financial statements without having that report? So uh, the decision to delay it, and we don't know why, uh, KPMG never told me, um, I don't know. Uh, maybe they decided after seeing my report that they had to actually go and investigate certain things. Maybe there were things in my report they, they hadn't previously been aware of. I, I, I'm just guessing. Can you imagine a situation where this is all reasonable? Like, can you can you give a very generous reading of like, under these circumstances, there's a possibility that there's something I don't know about that they made a rational decision that would get them off the hook. Can you, is there any generous interpretation that you can think of? If there was even a sliver that I thought that, I would not have published what I published last week. Hmm. Uh, I was... I I learned the most. I didn't know about the letters until December, the, the manipulated documents, but I knew about almost everything else going back to the summer. Mm-hmm. And I've been losing sleep. Like it has been really difficult to hold in um, these secrets and this information. Uh, and I have been checking, triple checking, quadruple checking. I hired a lawyer mm-hmm. to check my report first to make sure I've done all of my due diligence. So if I thought for one second, there was even a tiny bit that could salvage pride from any of this mess, I wouldn't have proceeded. And I think that's clear in pride's response last week to me, they say stuff went wrong. Mm. Um, and I struggled to think, you know, I've, I've asked in private conversations to people within pride, is there anything that I said that's not right? Like, mm-hmm. tell me. And I have not heard a single thing. No one has come and said, you know, slide 43, that was wrong. Not a thing. You know, I know that one of the things that the LGBT community struggles with is our propensity to tear down our leaders. Like that is, mm-hmm. that is consistent across the world. You know, we were, we were talking last uh, summer about Pride UK, London UK, mm. uh, and, and the collapse of their leadership at Pride London. Uh, you know, we've also seen allegations of, of fraud and stuff at other Prides. But I think when you have an organization that represents, you know, a city of, you know, Pride Toronto brings in a million people, mm. like a million people go and, and, and participate in that. And when you have an organization that represents the community to that extent, one in five gay people live in Toronto, according to Stats Canada, and they take 1.8 million worth of public dollars and say, we will deliver X, Y, and Z. uh, And yet what gets delivered is nowhere near X, Y, and Z. It's not even in, you know, the the alphabetic alphabet. It's miles away. Um, That's a concern. You know, and I think it's an accountability issue. I am concerned with how the federal government has responded to this. We've been big fans of the Liberals and all the work they've done, but it seems like there's a a, a distinct blind eye being turned here, uh, especially by the funding coming out of public safety, which was, uh, you know, secured through the Treasury Board Secretariat. So right at the top, the highest levels of this Liberal government were aware of some of the money and and the fact it was going into Toronto Pride. Um, There needs to be some accountability there, I believe. Um, There's hundreds of documents that have been withheld citing cabinet confidences. So this goes right to the top. Oh, my. Um, So this, you're absolutely right to highlight this. And so far in the media coverage, 
and even in the conversations, a lot of the focus has been on Pride Toronto. And yes, they need to be held account, clearly. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're absolutely right to highlight this missing piece that uh, public safety promised to release the documents to me in December. Hmm. So I asked for them in the summer. They said, we'll give it to you in December. That date came and went. And I was like, what's going on? No response. Same thing with the ministry of finance. So last summer asked for the documents. It was supposed to arrive in January. And again, they never showed up. So I have to now initiate a complaint on those missing documents. Why aren't those documents being released to me? Because it's that public safety grant, that's worth a million of the 1.85, a million dollars is a piece of this puzzle that is entirely missing from my analysis. There could be an entire new report that I'm going to have to publish when I get those documents back. So uh, yeah, that, the secrecy, but also, as you mentioned, uh, this willingness to turn a blind eye on all of the problems with these, within these grant reports. It is really damning for uh, both heritage, public safety, and the federal government. I, th- this is all reminding me of a 20-year-old scandal, approximately 20 years old. It was late 90s, early 2000s. I, I can't remember the exact details, but I do remember there was a, a scandal with uh, federal funding of think tanks that really just turned out to be slush funds, that the, the think tanks didn't really actually do the work that they were accused of doing, which is one of the reasons to this day why think tanks aren't really called think tanks in Canada. They, they call themselves everything else under the sun to try to avoid that term because of this, this old scandal. Um, now, I'm not necessarily saying that the Senate is using Pride Toronto as a slush fund to, to get... I mean the Privy Council. The, the, or, or whomever is using it to, to get money into their own private pockets. But like, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Uh, like, th- this is what top level corruption tends to look like, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that bad. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like within the queer orgs, because we have a lot of queer orgs that are doing really great work, right? Oh yeah, so for sure, yeah. We know that it's not just the slush fund, but what it is producing is it's producing an entire industry of queer orgs that for their very survival, they depend on good relations with the current government. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not quite a slush fund, but it is a fund that uh, enables groups to do work provided they have some level of loyalty or connection to you. So mm-hmm. that's what I fear. I fear that the system that's been created since Trudeau came to power, it has been really, really great for queer orgs mm-hmm. and as a result for queer communities. But this other element, the, what strings are coming attached to these funds? Where's the measures of accountability and transparency? Um, and yeah, what, what kind of relationships are going on behind the scenes to make these funds possible? Well, we had some degree of accountability at the Pride Toronto uh, AGM. Do you think that any anything came out of that? Well, I think we were successful in a sense in that the financial statements were not approved. There was so much chaos um, at the meeting for various reasons that the clock ran out. So they uh, they were they were about to just take two questions from the auditor. <laughs> And I had to step in. I had my hand up the whole time waiting to ask my questions. And uh, 
they tried to skip it through. So I tried to put a stop to it uh, through a point of order. And through that, the, the clock ran out and the meeting had to be adjourned. No financial reports approved and board elections did not proceed. So we're going to have to have another meeting, uh, you know, in a, a few weeks uh, in order to go through all this again. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to let us know a little bit more about what's been going on. Uh, maybe myself and uh, Sebastian will... Uh, reach out to some of our connections and see what they know about the federal government's uh, role in all of this. Um, don't forget that you can uh, find Tom Hooper. Uh, your Twitter is probably the best place to find you, which is Thomas Hooper. What an amazing <laughs> username to, to get <laughs> there, which I mean, very impressive. That's H-O-O-P-E-R. Um, how else can folks uh, find you if need be? Uh, you can send me an email, thooper at yorku.ca. Um, I think that's probably, those are the best ways to to find me for sure. Excellent. Well, we will be covering the other LGBT news of the week just after this. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in a few minutes. Je suis pas tout seul à être tout seul Ça fait déjà ça de moins dans la tête Et si je comptais combien on est Beaucoup Tout ce à quoi j'ai déjà pensé Dire que plein d'autres y ont déjà pensé Mais malgré tout je me sens tout seul Du coup J'ai parfois eu des pensées suicidaires J'en suis peu fier on croit parfois que c'est la seule manière de les faire taire Ces pensées qui me font vivre un enfer Ces pensées qui me font vivre un enfer Est-ce qu'il n'y a que moi qui ai la télé et la chaîne culpabilité Mais faut bien changer les idées Pas trop quand même Sinon ça repart vite dans la tête Et c'est trop tard pour que ça s'arrête C'est là que j'aimerais tout oublier Du coup J'ai parfois eu des pensées suicidaires J'en suis peu fier on croit parfois que c'est la seule manière de les faire taire Ces pensées qui me font vivre un enfer Ces pensées qui me font vivre un enfer Et je sais vraiment pas quoi faire de toi Justement réfléchir C'est bien le problème avec toi Tu sais j'ai mûrement réfléchi Et je sais vraiment pas quoi faire de toi Justement réfléchir C'est bien le problème avec toi
welcome back to Canada, home of Canada's queer media. That was L'Enfer by Stromae and uh, mm-hmm. our, our interview with uh, Tom Hooper. Sebastian, you listened to yes. four hours. Yes. What, what did we miss in our conversation with Tom? Um, uh, I think about three people in total who were attending that meeting knew the Robert Rules of Order. Um, it was definitely uh, an absolute mess. I think part of the dysfunction is just people kept calling. I, I think they, they thought that um, point of order it, in standard uh, meetings, if you say point of order, that means like, you know, this, we are talking about an item during another item's slotted time. So, you know, agenda item number seven is we're going to talk about, I don't know, the weather. Uh, agenda number four, we're talking about road maintenance. You're talking about the weather. Right now is set aside for road maintenance. Point of order. Please leave that until later. But people are using point of order as like a magic spell that they could just interrupt the conversation and say whatever. So people are like, point of order. I disagree with that guy. And it's like, and so I it, felt really like, bad. Did it become the equivalent of I declare? <laughs> I yeah, declare. basically, yeah. <laughs> I, I, uh, the chair was not an excellent communicator by any means, but I did feel kind of, uh, my heart broke from a little bit because I heard him say at least 30 times, mostly under his breath, that's not a point of order. Um, and then, but okay, I will answer your question. So there was just um, all the topics were sort of mixed in and people were just talking about every issue kind of whenever they felt like it instead of the chair doing his job as chair and saying like, we will talk about that in item number six as agreed upon in the agenda that we all voted to to pass. Like, you I know, thought the agenda didn't pass. Oh no, the agenda did pass, but it okay. took an hour and six minutes to get to that point. That's so generally speaking, the agenda is passed within the first 10 minutes. So, I mean, there was uh, whew, there was issues. Um, it, it was it was a very hostile environment, I'm going to have to say. Uh, another one of the highlights was uh, it was revealed at one point in time and no policies. No, four, <laughs> actually. That is that's bananas. Like, no wonder everything's falling apart. That means they have nothing to do with, like, you know, ensuring uh, equitable and, and uh, you know, a good environment for people with disabilities. It means, you know, hiring and firing. It means what if there's a conflict of interest? It means what if there's conflict? It means... What if there is uh, uh, financial issues? It means uh, who who does and does not have the right to touch the checkbook. A non-for-profit corporation needs a lot of policies. And here's the great thing: this is they're not the first not-for-profit organization in the world. You can download that stuff from the internet. You can take somebody else's policies and just tweak it to be your own. That is actually you can Google it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. not only that, I've actually spoken to people who are full-time policy professionals. That's what they do. And even they will admit that 80% of what they do is download a policy they've already written for somebody else and tweak it for this group. That's that's just what happens because you've already got everything laid out. You've already got everything phrased well. It was just – it blew my mind. And, and no wonder everything's falling apart and nobody was particularly listening to each other and, and – bad communication so the, the one of the big ones that got me um so tom uncovered a lot as we discussed during our interview and the membership of toronto pride wanted to know why the auditor didn't discover any of that and it took them 35 minutes to not say <laughs> this was a standard financial audit as required by the province of ontario what tom did was a forensic audit 
if you want us to do a forensic audit, you need to pay us to do a forensic audit. That's all they needed to say. But instead it was, and I'm not going to put a sound clip because it's 20 minutes of not answering the question. That's all they needed to say. Like, you know, apologies. He went deeper than we did. Uh, we took everything that was handed to us as if it were true. He took everything that was handed to him as if it was fraudulent. Not necessarily because he was skeptical. Well, I mean, he was skeptical with good reason. It's not that he's like, I don't know, I hate the term, but he's not a hater. It was just like mm. he found something sketchy and he just started double checking everything. I will say I have attended meetings that were more dysfunctional, but this was one of the top meetings that I've seen in terms of like dysfunctionality. And it, a lot of it was just like all you had to say was like at one point then there's a half narrative discussion that came up. I timed it. Uh, they wanted to extend the meeting. The chair was like, no, there's accessibility issues. And it was back and forth. I don't care about accessibility issues. We need to extend it. People's voices need to be heard. This is only once a year. Da, da, da. And in the end, after all this, the chair just said, we have three people in the audience who need the sign interpreters. The sign interpreters are only paid until 1030. At 1030, there is a hard cut. He, if he said that right at the start, because when he said that, everyone's like, oh, actually, that's quite reasonable. And all yeah. he had to do was just say that right out the gates. Like at 1030, we lose our interpreters. That's all he had to say. And there was a whole bunch of issues where people were arguing back and forth. And it took them 20 minutes. Like the thing with the, the auditors, all they had to say was, we're not that kind of auditor. And granted, again, I don't think they particularly did an excellent job either way. But like, yeah, no, Tom discovered stuff that they didn't. That wasn't their job. That's all they had to say. What a mess. Well, next week we won't be talking about Toronto's Pride AGM. Uh, so anyone if we who's do, suffered... I, will, I will drink during that episode. If that we have is... to talk about so this again. <laughs> if, it, if it's necessary, um, we will. Yeah, hopefully we won't come to that. We have run out of time. We're playing out with Child of the Government by Jaylee Wolf. I've been Luke Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening.
Stop. 